0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair.
1: Chapter 36. How to Live Well on Nothing a Year. I suppose there is no man in Vanity Fair who does not sometimes wonder how his neighbors make ends meet. With the utmost regard for the Jenkins family, for instance, I confess that the appearance of their large barouche with the grenadier footman mystifies me. For those men and the carriage must cost six hundred a year at the very least. And then there are the splendid dinners, the two boys at Eton, the prize governess for the girls, the trips abroad, and the annual ball. How do the Jenkinses manage? What is Jenkins? Commissioner of the Tape and Sealing Wax Office, with £1,200 a year. Had his wife a private fortune? Oh, poo! She was one of eleven children of a small squire. All she ever gets from her family is a turkey at Christmas. How does Jenkins balance his income? Every one of us can point to some families who live nobody knows how, "'Many a glass of wine have we all drunk, hobnobbing with the giver, and wondering how the deuce he paid for it. "'Some three or four years after his stay in Paris, when Rawdon Crawley and his wife were established in a very small, comfortable house in Curzon Street, Mayfair, all their friends asked this question.' As I am able to tell the public how Crowley and his wife lived without any income, may I entreat the public newspapers not to reprint the following narrative, of which, as the discoverer, and at some expense too, I ought to have the benefit.' "'You may, by deep inquiry, learn how a man lives comfortably on nothing a year, "'but it is best not to be intimate with gentlemen of this profession, "'for it will cost you something considerable.' "'On nothing per annum, then, Crawley and his wife lived very happily and comfortably at Paris. "'He had quitted the guards and sold out of the army.' When we find him again, his mustachios and the title of colonel on his card are the only relics of his military profession. It has been mentioned that Rebecca, soon after her arrival in Paris, took a leading position in society and was welcomed at noble houses. The Englishmen of fashion courted her to the disgust of their wives, who could not bear the upstart. For some months the fashionable salons and the splendors of the court delighted and perhaps a little intoxicated Mrs. Crawley. But the colonel yawned sadly among the duchesses and great ladies. He left Rebecca to attend these parties alone, resuming his own simple amusements amongst his friends. Now, the colonel had a great aptitude for all games of chance, and by continual exercise at the cards, dice, and the billiard crew had attained much skill in their use. From being only a brilliant amateur, he had grown to be a consummate master of billiards. His genius used to rise with the danger, when luck had been unfavourable to him for a whole game, and the bets were against him, he would boldly make some prodigious shots and win, to everybody's astonishment. At cards he was equally skillful. He would constantly lose money at the start of an evening, making such careless blunders that newcomers were inclined to think meanly of his talent. "'Yet, when roused to action, his play became quite different, "'so that he was pretty sure of beating his enemy thoroughly before the night was over. "'The envious and the vanquished spoke sometimes with bitterness about his successes, "'hinting that they were due to foul play. "'In Paris at that time, gambling went on not just in public gaming rooms, "'but in private houses.' At Crawley's charming little evening gatherings, it was commonly practiced, much to good-natured Mrs. Crawley's annoyance. She spoke with grief about her husband's passion for dice. She bewailed it to everybody who came to her house. She besought the young fellows never to touch the dice, and when young Green lost a considerable sum of money, Rebecca passed a whole night in tears. "'as her servant told the unfortunate young gentleman, "'and actually went on her knees to her husband "'to beseech him to remit the debt. "'Yet how could he? "'He had lost just as much himself. "'Green might have time, but of course he must pay. "'Her house began to have an unfortunate reputation. "'The old hands warned the less experienced of their danger.' "'Colonel O'Dowd warned Lieutenant Spruy. "'A loud and violent fracas took place at the Café de Paris "'between Colonel O'Dowd and his lady and Colonel and Mrs. Crowley. "'Mrs. O'Dowd snapped her fingers in Mrs. Crowley's face "'and called her husband, "'No better than a blackleg!' "'Colonel Crawley challenged Colonel O'Dowd, "'but the commander-in-chief heard of it and ensured that no duel took place.' If Rebecca had not gone on her knees to General Tufto, Crawley would have been sent back to England, and he did not play, except with civilians, for some weeks after. In spite of Rawdon's undoubted skill, it became clear to Rebecca that their position was precarious. Gambling, she would say, is good to help your income, but is not an income itself. "'People may get tired of play. "'And then where are we?' Rawdon saw the truth of this. "'He had noticed that after a few nights of his little suppers, "'gentlemen did not present themselves very eagerly. "'Rebecca saw that she must get Rawdon a place at home or in the colonies. "'As a first step, she had made him sell out of the guards and go on half-pay.' "'He was also no longer Aide-de-Camp to General Tufto. "'Rebecca laughed at that officer, at his toupee, his false teeth, "'and his pretensions to be a lady-killer. "'The general had transferred his attentions to Mrs. Brent, "'along with his bouquets, his dinners, his opera boxes, and his knick-knacks. "'Becky had a dozen admirers in his place, to be sure, "'and could cut her rival to pieces with her wit.' but opera boxes and dinners palled upon her. Nosegays were not a provision for future years, and she could not live upon knick-knacks. She longed for more substantial benefits. Just then, news arrived that Miss Crawley was dying. The colonel must haste to her bedside. Mrs. Crawley and her child would remain behind until he came for them. Rawdon departed for Calais, but instead of sailing to Dover, he then made for Brussels, preferring that quiet little city where he had fewer debts than in England. Mrs. Crawley ordered the most intense mourning for herself and little Rawdon. Everyone knew that the colonel was to inherit, and she booked the premier suite at the hotel where they were staying instead of the small apartment she had an amicable wrangle with the landlord about carpets and new hangings and a final adjustment of everything except the bill. She went off in one of his carriages with her French maid and her child, the landlord and landlady smiling farewell to her from the gate. General Tufto was furious when he heard she was gone, and Mrs. Brent was furious with him for being furious. Lieutenant Spoony was cut to the heart, and the landlord got his best suite ready for her return. He kept the trunks which he left in his charge with the greatest care. They were not, however, found to be particularly valuable when opened some time after. Before she went to join her husband in Brussels, Mrs. Crawley made an expedition into England, leaving her little son behind under the care of her French maid. The parting between Rebecca and the little Rawdon did not cause either much pain. She had not seen much of him since his birth. After the amiable fashion of French mothers, she had placed him out at nurse in a village, where little Rawdon passed the first months of his life, not unhappily, with a numerous family of foster brothers in wooden shoes. His father would drive over often to visit him, "'and the elder Rawdon's heart glowed to see him rosy and dirty, "'shouting lustily and happy in the making of mud pies. "'Rebecca did not care much to go and see her son. "'Once he spoiled a new dove-coloured pelisse of hers. "'He preferred his nurse's caresses to his mamma's, "'and when finally he quitted that jolly nurse, "'he cried loudly for hours.' He was only consoled by his mother's promise that he should return the next day. Indeed, the nurse, too, was told that the child would be restored to her, and for some time anxiously awaited his return. Thirty years ago, there was great respect in Europe for the honour and wealth of Britons. You need only to be a milleur anglais, travelling in a private carriage, and credit was yours wherever you chose. It was not for some weeks after the Crawley's departure that the landlord of their Paris hotel found out the losses which he had sustained, not until the milliner and the jewellers made repeated visits with their bills for Madame Crawley. Even the poor nurse was never paid after the first six months for that milk of human kindness with which she had nurtured the healthy little Rawdon. Rebecca's object in her journey to London was to reach an agreement with her husband's creditors, and by offering them a shilling in the pound to secure his return to England, she managed to convince them, that she was offering them all her husband's wealth, and that otherwise he would stay on the continent and they would get no money at all. Thus, she purchased, with fifteen hundred pounds of ready money, more than ten times that amount of debt. Mrs. Crawley employed no lawyer. She made the lawyers of the creditors themselves do the business, and they complimented her upon the brilliant way in which she dealt with them, and declared that no professional man could beat her. Rebecca received their congratulations with perfect modesty, ordered a bottle of sherry to her dingy lodgings to treat the enemy's lawyers, shook hands with them at parting, in excellent good humour, and returned straightway to the continent to rejoin her husband and tell him the good news. Her son had been neglected during his mother's absence, for her French maid, forming an attachment for a soldier, forgot her charge, and little Rodin very narrowly escaped drowning on Calais Sands, where she had left and lost him. And so, Colonel and Mrs. Crawley came to London, and at their house in Curzon Street, Mayfair, they showed the skill which must be possessed by those who would live on non existent income. Chapter thirty seven. The subject continued. In the first place, let us describe how a house may be got for nothing a year. "'These mansions are to be had either unfurnished, where, if you have credit with Messrs. Gillows or Bantings, you can get them splendidly decorated according to your fancy, or they are let furnished, a less troublesome arrangement. It was so that Crawley and his wife preferred to hire their house.' Before Mr. Bowles came to Miss Crawley's house in Park Lane, that lady had as her butler a Mr. Raggles, who was the younger son of a gardener at Queen's Crawley. By good conduct, a handsome appearance, and a grave demeanor, Raggles rose from the knife-board to the butler's pantry. After many years at the head of Miss Crawley's house, he announced that he was about to marry a former cook of Miss Crawley's, who kept a small grocer's shop. In truth, the marriage had secretly happened some years back. Mr. Raggles retired to superintend the small shop. He added milk, cream, eggs, and country-fed pork to his stores, and his profits increased every year. He quietly and modestly amassed money, and when a snug bachelor's house at 201 Curzon Street, with rich furniture, went under the hammer, who should purchase the lease but raggles? Some of the money he borrowed, it is true, at rather high interest from a brother butler, but the chief part he paid down. And Mrs. Raggles found herself proudly sleeping in a bed of carved mahogany, with silk curtains and a wardrobe which would contain her and Raggles and all the family. Of course, they did not intend to occupy it long, but to let it again. As soon as a tenant was found, Raggles returned to the grocer's shop, but. "'It was a happy thing for him to walk down Curzon Street "'and survey his house with its carved bronze knocker. "'He was a good man, good and happy. "'The house brought him so handsome an income "'that he was determined to send his children to good schools, "'and accordingly, regardless of expense, "'Charles was sent to board at Dr. Swishtails "'and little Matilda to Miss Peckover's at Clapham.' Raggles loved the Crawley family as the author of all his prosperity. He thought there was no family so august. As luck would have it, Raggles' house in Curzon Street was to let when Rawdon and his wife returned to London. Raggles knew the colonel, and he not only let his house to him, but acted as his butler whenever he had company, with Mrs. Raggles cooking in the kitchen below and sending up dinners. In this way, Crawley got his house for nothing, for though Raggles had to pay taxes and rates, and the interest of the mortgage to the brother butler, and his children's school fees, and the cost of meat and drink for his family, and for Colonel Crawley too, and though the poor wretch was utterly ruined by the transaction, his children being flung on the streets, and himself driven into the fleet prison, yet somebody must pay for gentlemen who live for nothing a year, and in this case it was the unlucky Raggles. I wonder how many families are driven to ruin in this way, how many great noblemen rob their petty tradesmen and swindle their poor retainers. When we read that a nobleman owes six or seven millions, the defeat seems glorious even, and we respect the victim in the vastness of his ruin. But who pities this poor barber, or carpenter, or his poor devil of a tailor? When the great house tumbles down, these miserable wretches fall under it unnoticed." Roden and his wife generously patronized those of Miss Crawley's tradesmen who would serve them. Some were willing enough, especially the poor ones. It was wonderful to see the tenacity with which the washerwoman brought the cart every Saturday, and her bills week after week. Mr. Raggles himself had to supply the green groceries. Every servant was owed most of his wages, and thus kept up an interest in the house. Nobody was paid. Not the blacksmith who opened the lock, nor the glazier who mended the pane, nor the jobber who let the carriage, nor the groom who drove it. This is the way in which people live elegantly on nothing a year. At 201 Carlton Street, there was a hearty welcome, a kind smile, and a good dinner from the host and hostess, just as if they had three or four thousand a year and so they did. Not in money, but in produce and labor. No man had better claret than Rawdon. His drawing-rooms were the prettiest little salons conceivable, decorated by Rebecca with knick-knacks from Paris. When she sat at her piano, trilling songs, the stranger thought himself in a little paradise of domestic comfort and agreed that although the husband was rather stupid, the wife was charming. Rebecca's wit, cleverness, and flippancy made her speedily the vogue in London among a certain class. You beheld her carriage in the park, surrounded by dandies, her box in the third tier of the opera was crowded but the ladies held aloof from her and closed their doors to our little adventurer there are ladies who may be called men's women being welcomed entirely by all the gentlemen and slighted by all their wives mrs firebrace is of this sort The lady with the beautiful fair ringlets, whom you see every day in Hyde Park, surrounded by famous dandies. Mrs. Rockwood is another, whose parties are announced in the fashionable newspapers. But while simple folk might envy them, persons who are better informed know that these ladies have no chance of establishing themselves in society, but are pitilessly excluded." Now, the few female acquaintances whom Mrs. Crawley had known abroad not only declined to visit her when she came to London, but cut her severely when they met in public. When Lady Bearacre saw her in the opera house, she gathered her daughters about her as if they would be contaminated by a touch of Becky, and stared frigidly at her little enemy.' "'Mrs. Blenkinsop, the banker's wife, cut her at church, where Becky went regularly now. Rawdon at first felt very acutely the slights upon his wife, and was gloomy and savage. "'He talked of calling out the husbands of the insolent women who did not respect his wife, "'and it was only by the strongest commands on her part that he was restrained. "'You can't shoot me into society.' "'she said, good-naturedly. "'Remember, my dear, that I was only a governess, "'and you, you poor silly man, "'have the worst reputation for debt and wickedness. "'We shall get quite as many friends as we want, by and by, "'and in the meanwhile you must be a good boy. "'When we heard that your aunt had left almost everything to Pitt, "'do you remember what a rage you were in? "'You would have told all Paris "'if I had not made you keep your temper.' And then, where would you be now? In prison for debt, and not in a handsome house in London. Rage won't get us your aunt's money, and it is much better that we should be friends with your brother than enemies. When your father dies, Queen's Crawley will be a pleasant house for us to pass the winter in, or Pitt and his little boy will die, and we will be Sir Rawdon and my lady. While there is life, "'There is hope, my dear, and I intend to make a man of you yet. "'Who sold your horses for you, hmm? "'Who paid your debts for you?' "'Rodden confessed that he owed all these benefits to his wife. "'Indeed, Miss Crawley had left her money finally to Pitt.' Bute Crawley, who found that only five thousand pounds had been left to him, instead of the twenty which he expected, was in such a fury that he savagely abused his nephew and caused an utter breach between them. Rawdon Crawley, on the other hand, who got only a hundred pounds, astonished his brother and delighted his sister-in-law by writing them a very frank, manly, manly, good-humoured letter from Paris. He was aware, he said, that he had forfeited his aunt's behaviour, and though he did not disguise his disappointment, he was glad that the money was kept in their branch of the family, and heartily congratulated his brother and sent his affectionate good will. "'Becky joined in her husband's congratulations, "'writing that she would always remember Mr. Crawley's kindness "'when she was a friendless orphan. "'She wished him every happiness in his married life "'and hoped that one day she might be allowed "'to present her little boy to his uncle and aunt. "'Pitt Crawley received this letter very graciously, "'and as for Lady Jane... "'She was so charmed with it that she expected her husband "'to instantly divide his aunt's legacy into two "'and send half to his brother. "'To her ladyship's surprise, however, "'Pitt declined to give his brother thirty thousand pounds, "'but he thanked Rawdon and Mrs. Crawley "'and graciously pronounced his willingness to help their little boy. "'Thus an almost reconciliation was brought about.' "'When Rebecca came to town, Pitt and his wife were not in London. "'She heard through raggles that Miss Crawley's servants "'had been dismissed with decent payments, "'and that Mr. Pitt had only once appeared in London "'when he stayed for a few days at the house "'and did business with his lawyers. "'Becky longed for the arrival of her new relation. "'When Lady Jane comes,' she thought, "'she shall be my sponsor in London.' "'and the women will ask me when they find the men want to see me. "'A lady in this position needs a companion. "'I have always admired the way in which the tender creatures "'hire an exceedingly plain friend of their own sex, "'from whom they are almost inseparable. "'Even battered, brazen, beautiful, heartless Mrs. Firebrace, "'whose father died of her shame,' "'Even she is hardly seen in any public place without a shabby companion sitting somewhere in the shade.' Rawdon said Becky, very late one night, as a party of gentlemen were seated round her drawing-room fire, "'I must have a sheep-dog.' "'A what?' said Rawdon, looking up from the card table. "'A sheep-dog!' "'said young Lord Southdown, "'My dear Mrs. Crawley, what a fancy! (laughs) "'Why not have a Great Dane? "'I know of one so big, by Jove, "'it would almost pull your carriage. "'Or do you want a little pug "'that would go into one of Lord Steyne's snuff-boxes?' "'I meant a moral sheep-dog,' said Becky, "'laughing and looking at Lord Steyne. "'A dog to keep the wolves off me. "'A companion?' Oh, dear little innocent lamb, you need one, said the Marquis of Steyne, With jaw thrust out, he began to grin hideously, his little eyes leering at Rebecca. The great Lord of Steyne was standing by the fire, sipping coffee. A score of candles sparkled around the mantelpiece, lighting up Rebecca's figure to admiration as she sat on a flowered sofa. "'She was in a pink dress that looked as fresh as a rose. "'Her dazzling white arms and shoulders were half covered with a thin, hazy scarf. "'Her hair hung in curls round her neck. "'One of her pretty little feet peeped out from the crisp folds of the silk. "'The candles lit up Lord Steyne's shining, bald head, which was fringed with red hair.' He had thick, bushy eyebrows, with little bloodshot eyes, surrounded by a thousand wrinkles. When he laughed, two white buck teeth protruded, glistening savagely. He had been dining with royalty, and wore his garter and ribbon. Though his lordship was a short, bow-legged man, he was proud of the fineness of his ankle, and always caressing his garter knee. "'And so the shepherd is not enough!' Said he, to defend his lambkin. The shepherd is too fond of playing at cards and going to his clubs, answered Becky, laughing. Oh, "'God, what a debauched Corridon,' said my lord. I take your three to two, said Rawdon, at the card table. Oh, hark! snarled the noble Marquis. He's pastorally occupied. He's shearing a south down. Oh, damn! "'What a snowy fleece!' "'Lord Stane, in early life, had been notorious for his success at play. "'Rebecca rose up and took his coffee cup from his hand with a little curtsey. "'Yes,' she said, "'I must get a watchdog, but he won't bark at you.' And going into the other drawing-room, she sat down at the piano and began to sing French songs in such a thrilling voice that the mollified nobleman speedily followed her. Rawdon, meanwhile, played Ecarté, and won. Nights like these occurred many times in the week, his wife having all the talk and admiration, and he, sitting silent, not comprehending a word of the jokes and allusions, how is Mrs. Crawley's husband, Lord Stane used to say to him, and indeed that was now his role. He was Colonel Crawley no more. He was Mrs. Crawley's husband. About the little Ron, if nothing has been said all this while, it is because he is hidden in a garret somewhere, or has crawled into the kitchen for companionship. His mother scarcely ever took notice of him. "'He passed the days with his French maid, until she went away, "'and then the little fellow, howling in the loneliness of the night, "'had pity taken on him by a housemaid, "'who took him out of his solitary nursery into her bed and comforted him. "'Rebecca, my Lord Steyne, and one or two more were in the drawing-room "'when this shouting was heard overhead.' "'It's my chariot crying for his nurse,' said Rebecca. "'She did not move to go and see the child. "'He'll cry himself to sleep,' and they began talking about the opera. Rawdon had stolen off, though, to look after his son, "'and found Honest Dolly consoling the child. "'The colonel's dressing room was in those upper regions. "'He used to see the boy there in private every morning when he shaved.' Rodden Minor sitting on a box and watching the operation with never ceasing pleasure. They were great friends. The father would bring sweetmeats and hide them in a box, where the child laughed with joy on discovering the treasure. Laughed, but not too loud, for mamma was asleep below and must not be disturbed. She seldom rose till afternoon. Rawdon bought the boy plenty of picture books and crammed his nursery with toys. Its walls were covered with pictures pasted up by the father's hands and purchased by him with actual cash. When he was not with Mrs. Rawdon in the park, he would sit up here, passing hours with the boy, who rode on his chest, pulled his mustachios like driving reins, and spent days playing with him. The ceiling was low, and once, when the child was not five years old, his father, tossing him wildly up in his arms, hit the poor little chap's skull violently. Rodden Minor screwed up his face for a tremendous howl, but his father interposed, Oh, for God's sakes, Rowdy, don't wake Mama, he cried, and the child, looking piteously at his father, bit his lips, clenched his hands and didn't cry a bit. Rawdon told that story to everybody. By gad, sir, he explained. What a plucky boy he is. What a trump. I half sent his head through the ceiling, by gad, and he wouldn't cry for fear of disturbing his mother. Ha <laughs> ha. Once or twice a week, that lady visited the upper regions where the child lived. She came blandly smiling in beautiful new clothes and gloves and boots. Wonderful scarves, laces, and jewels glittered about her. She had always a new bonnet on, with flowers or magnificent ostrich feathers. When she left the room, an odor of roses lingered about the nursery. She was an unearthly being in the child's eyes, superior to his father to all the world, to be worshipped at a distance. To drive with her in the carriage was an awful ritual. He sat up in the back seat and did not dare to speak, gazing at the beautifully dressed princess opposite. Gentlemen on splendid prancing horses came up and talked with her, how her eyes beamed upon them. Sometimes, when she was away, he came into his mother's room. It was like a fairy's abode, a mystic chamber of delights. In the wardrobe hung wonderful robes. There was the jewel case and the wondrous bronze hand on the dressing table, glistening with a hundred rings. Poor, lonely little boy. Mother is the name for God in the hearts of little children. And here was one who was worshipping a stone. "'Now Colonel Crawley, rascal as he was, could love a child still. "'For Rawdon Minor he had a great secret tenderness, "'which did not escape Rebecca. "'It did not annoy her. "'She was too good-natured. "'It only increased her scorn for him. "'He felt somehow ashamed of this paternal softness "'and hid it from his wife, "'only indulging in it when alone with the boy.' "'He used to take him out in the mornings to the stables and the park. "'Young Lord Southdown, the best-natured of men, bought the little chap a pony, "'and on this little black Shetland, Rawdon's father liked to mount the boy "'and to walk by his side in the park. "'It pleased him to see his old quarters. "'He had begun to think of his bachelorhood with something like regret.' The old troopers were glad to recognize their ancient officer and dandle the little boy. Colonel Crawley found dining with his brother officers very pleasant. Hang it, I ain't clever enough for her. She won't miss me, he used to say. And he was right. Rebecca was fond of her husband. She was always perfectly good-humored and kind to him. "'She did not show her scorn for him much. "'Perhaps she liked him the better for being a fool. "'He went on her errands, obeyed her orders without question, "'took her to the opera box, and came back punctually to fetch her. "'When the companion arrived, his duties became very light. "'His wife encouraged him to dine out. "'Oh, don't stay at home tonight, my dear!' She would say, Some men are coming who will only bore you. Now I have a sheep dog, I need not be afraid to be alone. One Sunday morning, as Rawdon Crawley and his little son were taking their walk in the park, they passed an old acquaintance, Corporal Clink, talking to an old gentleman who held a boy in his arms. This other youngster had seized hold of the Waterloo medal which the corporal wore, and was examining it with delight. "'Good morning, Your Honor,' said Clink. "'This here young man is about the little colonel's age, sir.' "'His father was a Waterloo man, too,' said the old gentleman. "'Wasn't he, Georgie?' "'Yes,' said Georgie. "'He and the little chap on the pony "'were solemnly scanning each other, as children do. "'He was a captain,' said the old gentleman, rather pompously. "'Captain George Osborne, sir. "'Perhaps you knew him. "'He died the death of a hero, sir.' "'Colonel Crawley blushed quite red. "'I knew him very well, sir,' he said. "'And his dear little wife, how is she?' ''She is my daughter, sir,'' said the old gentleman, handing him a card with great solemnity. On it was written, ''Mr. Sedley, sole agent for the Anti-Cender Coal Association, Bunker's Wharf, and Anna Maria Cottages, Fulham Road West.'' Little Georgie went up and looked at the Shetland pony. ''Would you like to have a ride?'' said Rodden Minor. ''Yes,'' said Georgie. The colonel took up the child and put him on the pony behind Rawdon. Take hold of him round the waist, Georgie, he said, and both the children began to laugh. You won't see a prettier pair, sir, said the corporal, and the three men walked alongside the children. Thanks for
0: listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.